Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Some of my favorite travelers are with us in the hour ahead to tell us how they turn their travels into extraordinary adventures. It starts with your perspective. Astronaut Chris Hadfield photographed the Earth from space. And you wait for just the right angle between Africa and the spaceship and the sun, and suddenly the sun glints off the water as if some great lighting engineer just gave you the, the best picture possible. The things Pico Iyer observes in his travels become his most treasured souvenirs. That's a large part of what travel is for all of us, collecting those moments that, in fact, keep replaying inside us for the rest of our lives. Travel publisher Hilary Brett tells us how she still gets around in faraway places. I still hitchhike, I'm in my 70s, and you meet the most wonderful people. And we celebrate 10 years of joining you on the radio each week, remembering my first backpacking trip to Europe. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When a vacation makes you see the world differently than you did before you left home, you can bet it was time and money well spent. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll hear from some extraordinary travelers with a gift for showing us the world in a whole new light. Like me, travel publisher Hilary Bratt's been writing guidebooks for decades now. She tells us how it all started for her in the jungles of Peru a little later in the hour ahead. And author Pico Iyer makes a case for being open to surprises in our travels, to learn more about our place in the world and not miss what matters the most. One of the ultimate ways to explore our place in the grand scheme of things is circling the Earth, camera in hand, on the International Space Station. Chris Hadfield used his photographer's eye during his missions in space to capture remarkable impressions of our planet while circling it from 250 miles away. His book of photos from the space station is called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Commander Hadfield, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks. What an amazing experience to be a photo buff, being up on the International Space Station and going around the world every 92 minutes. How was that from a camera point of view? You know, sometimes you try and just say to yourself, I'm not going to take a picture. I'm just going to look. But it goes so fast. You come up on the coast, say, uh, the big bulge of Africa where Morocco is, and, and you're looking at it, and suddenly you realize, wow, all of the clouds are pushed away from shore like there's a force field around Morocco or something, and your right hand immediately reaches over and grabs the camera and pulls it up, and you start clicking, and you wait for just the right angle between Africa and the spaceship and the sun, and suddenly the sun glints off the water as if some great lighting engineer just gave you the best picture possible, and you take those pictures, and the, and then you're over the Sahara. It's, oh, it's, that is the trippiest explanation I've ever heard. I never thought I could <laughs> say, imagine, you're, you're coming around Morocco, and the clouds are gathered around like a little, little circle, and there's a force field, and suddenly you're over the Saharan <laughs> desert, and you got that yeah. day in and day out for months at a time, and you had your camera, and you collected it all in this book, You Are Here. Now, you wrote in the book how you started shooting everything in sight, and then you decided, no, nah, I'm going to get more focused, and, and you became almost like a stalker or somebody who was a hunter. <laughs> What yeah. were you stalking? What was the big shot when you were coming around the world another time? Well, I learned what to look for. At first, you just photograph everything. But, mm -hmm. but after a while, you develop sort of a relationship or an intimacy with what you're looking at. And you learn to look back where the sun's going to glint or to look ahead to the Terminator. Mm -hmm. The edge between the first light of the sun is just starting to cut through the atmosphere and then touch the surface of the world. Or if you look up to the horizon where the blue of the dawn is cutting in on a long diagonal streak under the green of the aurora of the northern lights. And, and you end up with the glowing haze and blue of the world and you have the green shimmer on the horizon and then this super sharp line of blue cutting underneath and putting an end to it. And that's all going on all the time. And you're just looking around to find something that is fleeting, hmm. uh, a glint of something or a shape that appears and disappears because of the angle that uh, you're looking at it from. And it's just, it's magnificent. And, and, it, and it, it makes me laugh and smile every time what the world shows me. Paging through your beautiful book, uh, You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, I, I was struck just by the flat-out beauty of the images. But I all, was also struck by the thought that you had kind of an agenda. You, your photographs were expressing a point of view. Were you evangelical about what you were learning and appreciating? What, what do you want people to get as a takeaway from this book? It was hard to choose which out of so many pictures that I took, uh, what would you put in a book and why? 
I had to give myself some guidelines. One was I wanted to show the whole world. So I didn't want to have just 200 pictures of the Bahamas and the Outback, which are both beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, but also I thought if I were lucky enough, whoever is holding this book in their hands, if they were beside me in this huge bulging window of the space station, which we call the cupola, if the two of us were floating weightless, heads down in the cupola, looking at the world, what would I want to show them in mm -hmm. the 92 minutes it's going to take? If you and I were there and I grabbed you by the arm and said, okay, let's take an hour and a half. I want to show you the world. Uh. And, and then what would I shake your arm and go, oh, wait, wait till you see this. Yeah. Look, look right here. <laughs> look what's coming. Look, and then tell you what I know about that. But I didn't want to tell people what to think. I wanted to make sure that they noticed what was there and then could draw their own conclusions. I didn't want them to miss that was there. So I didn't just, yeah. it's not just a coffee table book of pretty pictures. It's the pictures, but what I would have told you if the two of us were there I, in real time. There is that cohesiveness of the book that I appreciate. It was thoughtfully laid out. You mentioned that you spent about five months in 2013 up in space, and the quote is, you never tired of looking out the window, and you said, no astronaut ever has or will. That's a pretty yeah. strong statement. I mean, it's it's Niagara Falls, and it's a glorious sunset, and it is a shooting star. It's mm -hmm. it's a just a, and you, none of your other senses tell you that you're there. You don't you don't smell or taste or touch or hear the earth. It's all visual. And when when you're in the in this big window where on the space station, the cupola, looking at the world. There's actually a hush in there when there are two astronauts in there, uh, and hardly ever it's two because people are busy. We normally sort of whisper to each yeah. other just because it's that sense of privilege and almost a reverence, yeah. a responsibility of being there. And, and your eyes are seeing this on behalf of so many other eyes. Yeah. So you have that feeling all the time as well. We find that in the great museums in Europe is you just feel like whispering of sometimes yeah. when you're surrounded by Giotto frescoes or Botticelli paintings. And I can imagine the same would be for you as you're observing the earth from high above. Did you ever find yourself seeing the earth as recognizing it as kind of an organism in a way you might not if you're back down on the terra firma? Absolutely. And I think what really turned my mind one day was I was coming across Canada and I saw the town of Winnipeg, which, which I know fairly well. And it's a standard looking prairie town, really a standard town anywhere. It's got the downtown and it's got a river flowing through it mm -hmm. and it's got the highway and it's got the railways and it's got the suburbs and the airport and the surrounding farms. Hmm. And I know Winnipeg and I've been there. And then 20 minutes later, I was over Africa. And I went over a town and it had the downtown and the railway and the river and the surrounding and everything. And it was exactly the same. And, yeah. and I don't even know that town, but it is sort of instantly, very visually connected for me, the experience of being human. This is just us. This is how we live. We repeat the same patterns. And because I know what Winnipeg is like, it gave me a connectedness with the people of that city that I've, I don't even know the name of just by the very similarity of how oh. we exist over the whole planet. And partway through the flight, I started just referring to everybody as us. I didn't even consciously do it, but I noticed using social media that I just started referring to wherever it was as, hey, look, this is us here. This oh. is what we are doing. You know, that's a powerful thing for peace. Yeah. That is uh, a not just not, But self-awareness as well. And, mm. and so I would love for you and I to have 100 orbits of the world together. It changes mm. your perspective of where we all fit in. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Commander Chris Hadfield. And Chris's new book is You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. It's the very best of 45,000 photographs that <laughs> Chris took when he orbited the world more than 2,500 times. Chris, I would like to just talk about a few of the features of the Earth, and we don't have a lot of time left, and I just want to say these things and get your take on it, because sure. I was struck by this when I enjoyed your book. Uh, the deltas, magnificent deltas all over the planet. The, they're a really distinctive feature. Some of them, of course, are the obvious ones flowing into the sea, like the Nile at, at Alexandria. But some of them are inland, where a river comes over a mountain and spreads. And, and mm. so you have this weird incongruous delta in the middle of Africa or in mm -hmm. northern Mexico somewhere. But it's a pattern you see all over. How about puffy clouds over a desert? Yeah, that's funny. And, and they often have sort of a, a, they're generated by some sort of undulating air mass. And so mm -hmm. they have a regular pattern to them. And they look like brush strokes. Mm. They shouldn't be there. But because they are there, it's even more beautiful. Yeah, it was like a waffle iron or something, something that was very uh, <laughs> regimented. Yeah. I imagine you saw some angry weather also. Coming across Indonesia and Malaysia one night, Tom Marshburn and I, one of my crewmates, there was a storm that was 
thousands of miles long and lightning all continuous, oh, wow. like someone, some giant hand was had this huge white highlighter and was just streaking up and, and lightning is contagious. It infects the whole cloud and both of us, if our jaws could have dropped, <laughs> they would have dropped. So you can see lightning below you. You can scan the world's surface and see where the lightning storms are. Uh, it's like an incandescent bulb. The whole cloud wow. uh, erupts. And some of the lightning goes vertical out of the cloud in blue sprites and, and red sprites up yeah. into space. Yeah, lightning isn't, isn't just cloud to ground. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Chris Hadfield, Commander Chris Hadfield, from the International Space Station. And Chris had a little sideline going on when he was up there. He had a camera with him, and he shot 45,000 photographs. Chris has put together this incredible photo collection. It's called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, and it's a beautiful celebration of what we can see and learn from space. Chris, when you think of all the experience you had circling this planet 2,600 times... What did it do to your perspective? Let's just finish with a thought on how it lets you know, get closer to our true place in the scheme of things. We get so wrapped up in our own particular 75 or 80 years on the Earth, and we desperately want those 80 years to be the most important in the whole history of the whole planet. You know, the doomsday sign holders and that general natural self-importance, that fades away. You see the four and a half billion-year nature of the world, the, the huge overlapping natural things that have happened. You can see the continents where they fit together. You can see how Africa and Asia are tearing apart. You can see where Greece and Italy tore from each other. It's, you get a more humble sense of, of who you are, but also the great grace and privilege of seeing this place and the unique beauty of it, the inherent Christmas ornament-like gorgeousness of it. Mm. And uh, I think it makes you a better a better citizen and steward of the world. You wrote a beautiful line in your book. You said, it's a helpful corrective to the frantic self-importance we are prone to as a species. Yeah. I would love to be able to take uh, not just politicians, but every single yeah. person in the world, come to the window for 100 orbits and then come back to Earth and think about where you truly are. Commander Chris Hadfield, congratulations on a beautiful book. You are here around the world in 92 minutes, and thanks for sharing this with all of us down here on Terra Firma. Thank you, Rick. Glad to be back. Let's take a look back at how the fearlessness of youthful travels can lead to a career in publishing and a lifetime exploring the world. I'll compare notes with adventurer Hilary Bratt in just a bit. Next, Pico Iyer takes us to the tranquil places, where we can make sense of our global explorations free from jet lag. Pico explains how you can benefit from the art of stillness and enjoy adventures in going nowhere. That's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Pico Iyer made a name as a globe-trotting author and world citizen who feels equally at home in Kyoto, Reykjavik, Oxford, and Havana. His recent book, The Art of Stillness, Adventures, and Going Nowhere, was inspired by his TED Talk of the same name. In it, he makes a case for the benefits of a journey that appears to go nowhere at all. 
One where we turn off the emails and the phone. Where we take a break that lets us process our experiences and shape our lives from the inside out. Pico, it's great to have you back on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm delighted to be here, Rick. Thank you. Now, Pico, you've written about going to the most exciting places. And to me, uh, Rolling Stone gathers no moss when I think about Pico Iyer. And you've also had this parallel concern, and it's been consistent with you for a long time, about slowing down and the almost cliched smell the roses. Why is the tempo of our daily lives uh, a concern to you? We all know that, let's say, you take a wonderful two-week trip to Paris or Florence. Really, the excitement often takes place after you get back home, and for the next two years or 20 years, you replay it, you go over your photos, you think about the roads that you didn't visit and want to see next time, and that in some ways, the amount of time you spend on the actual trip is tiny compared with all that it takes place in your head afterwards. And the trip is almost like the first course. It's laying the table for the banquet that awaits you when you're back in your daily life and recalling and recreating and processing, making sense of everything you've seen in Paris or Iran or wherever it might be. I like that, that you can extend, not only extend the travel experience, but actually give it value by taking some time afterwards and thinking about it. And and you write about that in your book as is part of the job for us as travel writers. You write, our job is to turn through stillness a life of movement into art. Sitting still at our workplace can be our battlefield. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, you and I do have the advantage that it's our job when we get back home to sit still for quite a long time to go over our notes and create some kind of order out of them and come up with a piece at the end of it. But I think even somebody who doesn't have that professional excuse is sifting through the images that she's taken or is going over her journal or one way or another taking this bombardment of feelings and experiences and sensations and trying to see how it's changed her, what she's learned from it, what she wants to share with her closest friends. And you know, even today, I can remember so piquantly the first two hours I spent in Japan 32 years ago. And it was so brief, and yet probably every week since it's gone mm. through me and I've recreated it again and again. And I think that's a large part of what travel is for all of us, collecting those moments that, in fact, keep replaying inside us for the rest of our lives. You know, that's, that relates to my work as a travel writer because one of my great frustrations is I don't realize I've experienced something that's really going to be valuable to me as a travel writer until after I've done it, and then I can't go back and take a photograph of it. So I don't have the photograph that I could have got very easily had I realized what a rich experience I was having. But the experience became rich after I got a little distance from it, and I put it together in my mind. Yes, and you have that inner invisible photograph that's quite vivid inside your head. And I don't um, have any <laughs> photo to show, and it's just really a frustrating <laughs> thing. Well, see, I'm lucky because I don't travel with a camera, so I have my notes and my, my memories. And I also think, and again, I think everyone experiences this, that we travel and in some ways we collect sights, but it's only when we're sitting still that we turn those into insights and we derive the meaning out of it. The experience offers us the raw material, but how it affects us comes to us when we're sitting still. Now, think about that. I love what you just pointed out there. We collect sights. That's just mechanical. But to turn those sights into insights, that's what distinguishes a great trip. Yes, and I think we all know it's really hard to do that when you're running around. One Mm -hmm. way or another, it's when we're most at peace and stationary that we can see what's important and that sometimes it just rises to the surface of our memory or imagination. That moment that you just described that has really stayed with you in the trip. You didn't get the photo of it, but Mm -hmm. you can still see it in your mind's eye. Pico, when we're talking about turning our travels into more than just a collection of sights but rich insights, so often our attitude shapes the potential of the travel experience we're going to enjoy. Two people could go to the same place, from my experience as a tour guide, and come away with two completely different experiences, one great and the other one riddled with complaints and disappointments. Yes. I mean, I often tell myself, you can take an angry man to the Himalayas and he'll just continue complaining about the food. And you take a different kind of very responsive, appreciative person to Newark, New Jersey, and she finds this amazing Tibetan museum that's tucked into downtown Newark. So I very much feel that the destination is much less important than the spirit we bring to it. And Part of a traveler's job is to prepare her spirit accordingly and try to be sure that her heart and eyes will be open to what is to be found in any place. 
So how do you do that? How do you make your heart and your, your being open to these experiences? I, I would think a lot of people have the opposite problem. They're almost shut off. They've got a precondition and they want to see it canned and on stage in an air-conditioned environment. I think that when I visit a new place, it's like meeting a beautiful and fascinating stranger. It's like, as if the most beautiful woman in the world has just come into my life and I have 18 hours to get to know her, or 18 days perhaps, and I don't want to waste a moment. And if I start lecturing to her and telling her about my life, I'm going to lose that opportunity. Mm. I want to learn about this mysterious and unexplored aspect of the world and ask questions and look around corners I wouldn't otherwise and draw this person or this place out. And I think it's a choice that we often make, and it has to do with how... And I think when we travel, we're usually nicer versions of ourselves because most of us, I think, are traveling in order to be expanded or to learn something or to face something that we mm -hmm. don't enjoy in our daily lives. And so... That's already a good start, I think. The hard thing is to be responsive when you're at home in your day-to-day -day routine, and I can't manage that. But uh, abroad, I, I can at least be more open than I would be otherwise. Pico Iyer is the author of articles, essays, and books inspired by more than 40 years of global travels. His titles include Video Night in Kathmandu, The Lady and the Monk, The Global Soul, and The Man Within My Head. He joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about the art of stillness which is also the title of a TED Talk he's recently given. His website is picoiyerjourneys.com. That's spelled P-I-C-O-I-Y-E-R. Pico, now you've really walked in the talk here because you've lived in New York City, and you've traded that exciting lifestyle for a small town in rural Japan, which uh, I can imagine is a far cry from the energy in, of Manhattan, and you actually feel that you got richer by doing that. Can you explain that a bit, please? Well, I deliberately moved when I was 29 from New York City to Japan because I felt that that fast lane lifestyle that I was enjoying, uh, I had an office on the 25th floor, four blocks from Times Square and a nice apartment on Park Avenue and 20th. And I was leading this very exciting life, but I thought I was only seeing one corner of the world. And I didn't want, as Henry David Thoreau said, to die feeling I'd never lived. I thought I need hmm. to see something exactly the opposite to this. So I threw that all over and I moved to, as you said, a single room on the back streets of Kyoto where I had no telephone, no toilet, no bed even. And I knew in advance that that was going to open up different perspectives on the world. 28 years later, I'm still uh, very near Kyoto and my wife and I live in this two-room apartment in the middle of nowhere and we don't have a car or a bicycle mm. or a TV I can understand. And one blessing of that is that every morning when I wake up, it feels like the day stretches for a thousand hours. I, mm. I have much more mm. time than I did when I was living in New York City. And the other beauty of that is that even after 28 years in Japan, I feel there's more I don't know about Japan than ever before. And I, it, I never get bored there. I can't take mm. things for granted. And I don't know what the next day will bring. So for anyone who's a writer or has a sense of curiosity, it's a marvel to be in a very foreign place, even if it's half familiar. Wow, that whole concept of die having never lived, even though you put many years in, it, it reminds me of just the irony of our contemporary lifestyle. We just all seem to be scrambling to make a living in order to live better, but it's almost counterproductive sometimes. Yes, I mean, I think that's what I decided when I was in New York City, that you can make a living but you also have to make a life. And at the end of the day, oh. it's the life that you made more than the bank account. And you're, you're running in opposite directions almost. When you're making a living, you're running away from making a life, if you're not careful. Exactly. Exactly. And I thought, when I'm on my deathbed, is it going to be my resume and my bank account that is going to sustain me and inspire me? Mm. Or the beautiful, wonderful experiences I've had, or if I'm facing some crisis in my life, as all of us do, if I suddenly lose a loved one, mm -hmm. is it racing around that's going to help me in that moment, mm -hmm. or is it being still and having collected myself and prepared myself for seeing what's important in life? This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Pico Iron. Pico's book is The Art of Stillness. Religious people have uh, this concept of a Sabbath, you know, a day of rest, I think even non-religious people can enjoy a Sabbath. What are your thoughts on, on this whole notion of a Sabbath day? Well, it's interesting. I think the more the world has sped up, the more fashionable a secular Sabbath has been, the more all of us crave a little time off. And I think when I began traveling, the great luxury is to have a lot of space, 
But now the great luxury is to have a lot of time. And I've noticed even in Silicon Valley, for example, a lot of people there observe what they call an internet Sabbath, where they go completely offline from Friday night to Monday morning every week just so they can go for a walk in the hills, so they can breathe, so they can talk to their loved ones. And I think many of us have the sense of being so accelerated we're permanently dizzy and all we're craving is just a chance to give ourselves a break and take a day off or take an hour off every day to take a walk or go running or one way or another to forcibly extract ourselves from living a life at the pace of a machine rather than the pace of a human. You know, we strive for exhilaration and we don't notice sometimes we're just permanently dizzy. Yes, and I think that's why you just have to step away from your life a bit. I think, again, when I was in New York City, now I think it was almost like eating potato chips, and they're tasty and they make me happy, and I was eating and eating and eating them. But it was only when I stopped I realized, oh, well, there's a plate of salmon over there or a steak <laughs> or a vegetable risotto that's tastier and healthier and probably is going to make me much happier. But I've got to stop eating the potato chips if I'm going to see the other alternatives around. And we get into these kind of addictive cycles adrenaline cycles and we have to just stop and see is this really making me happy or is it just a habit that I'm too lazy to shed. <laughs> you know you, you have an interesting uh, life story because you kind of straddle the east and the west Asia and, and uh, Europe and America and so on and I've read a, a lot of your material and you're you know not religious on the other hand you seem very religious and you always share a huge respect for religious traditions, even though you don't believe in those traditions. How has yes, your travels you, you, contributed to that? You expressed it perfectly. And I think in my travels, I've gone many times to Jerusalem, for example, or to Rome or Tibet. And as you said, I'm not a part of any of those religious traditions, but I find the people who are in those traditions are often humblingly kind. They're very attentive. They're leading very rich lives. And I'm traveling to those places to learn from them. And I'm, I'm not presumptuous enough to assume that I can be part of those traditions, but I feel that they have a lot to offer and teach me. And I think when you say that um, I'm not a member of a religious tradition, but I'm religious, probably that's just a way of saying that I'm interested in an inner life as well as an outer life. And I probably figure my outer life is only going to be as good as my inner life is. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think the things we most crave in life are things like intimacy and a deep conversation and being totally absorbed in something. And those have less to do with running around mm. than just being in one place and mm. enjoying a talk or in losing yourself to a piece of music or yeah. sitting in front of um, the Western Wall in Jerusalem and just watching the world unfold. Yeah, in your book, The Art of Stillness, you wrote, heaven is the place where you think of nowhere else. Have you been there? Yes. Um, 24 years ago, uh, at the suggestion of a schoolteacher friend, I decided to just to take a three-day holiday in a Catholic hermitage about three hours from my mother's house by car. And I'm not a Catholic, and I'm not completely a hermit. But it was really one of the best trips I've ever taken. Partly, of course, I didn't need visas or inoculations or any of that. But most of all, I just spent three days in silence, looking at the great blue expanse of the Pacific around me, hearing bells ring, taking walks, resting my mind. And I truly felt that I came back from that trip a different person. And that's always my criterion of a good trip. Mm. Um, I want to come back somewhat different from the person who left home. And so I've actually gone back to that place uh, 70 times in the last 24 years, and it's become my most reliable form of taking a holiday. Very friction-free, and also it just takes me to a, a different space where I'm not thinking of anything else. And I'm not fretting about my emails and I'm not carrying out some agitated discussion with a distant friend. Mm. I'm just letting all that fall away and thinking about what's most important to me and what I should do for the next six months. And I come back into my life so energized and, and full of direction, I hope. So just to get very practical for a moment, are you saying there are places uh, around the United States where if you're looking for a, a monastic experience for four or five days, you can just check in and, and have that? Many, many places. I'm guessing a place within an hour or two of every listener to this program. I remember there was a book, and I think it's still available, called Sanctuaries, which is a list of some of the many, many retreat houses mm. around. And there are probably many more now than there were then, because I think more and more people are taking holidays in this form mm -hmm. as our lives get uh, accelerated. So the place that I go 
was embarrassingly inexpensive in terms of the donation that they requested. The monks couldn't have been friendlier. The food is wonderful. It has the best views in Big Sur, California, and that's saying quite a lot. Mm. And I feel that I've actually become great friends with those monks as watching them get older as I get older. And it's lovely on a holiday to go back and see the same faces and pick up where you left off and also enjoy just peace and quiet and beauty. Mm -hmm. Especially in our world where, you know, our greatest luxuries for so many people are having access to lots of information and to keep on moving. Now almost we need to crave the alternative as a holiday from that. Yes, I noticed, uh, and I'm sure you've had the same experience 30 years ago, when I talked about going to Cuba or Tibet, people's faces would light up. But nowadays, it's not so hard to see Cuba and Tibet on our right. smartphones or our laptops. And nowadays, people's faces light up when I talk about <laughs> going nowhere or going offline or when I describe going to this monastery. Then they say, oh, I, I want to be a part of that. How can I get there? And it's actually very, very easy, practically speaking. The only challenge with my retreat house and probably many is that so many people want to go, you have to sometimes reserve a few months in advance. Yeah. But there are also a lot of cancellations. So it's ha it can be harder to get into a retreat house than into a luxury hotel. But I would also say it's much more worthwhile to go to the retreat house. I intentionally didn't ask you for Pico Iyer's favorite retreat house in California because uh, it would make it more commotional than it wants to be probably. <laughs> but I'm so glad you said that within an hour of any of our listeners, you could find a place that offers this if you, if you just know where to look. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Pico Iyer. His book and his TED Talk is The Art of Stillness. Pico, I just loved the way that you wrapped up your TED Talk with sort of your creed of going nowhere. Could you wrap up our conversation just by summing up this? Uh, when, when you talked about how we have this fast world and what we need as an antidote to that is just slowing down. I suppose my sense is that in an age of noise, Nothing is more luxurious than silence. And in an age of distraction, nothing is so sumptuous as attention. And in an age of movement, nothing is more urgent than sitting still. And I sometimes tell my friends that they could go on vacation to Paris or Hawaii or New Orleans, and I'm sure they would have a wonderful time. But if they really want to come back home, a new person and in love with the world and full of joy... I think they might want to consider uh, going nowhere. That is so, Pico Iyer. Pico, thank you for challenging us to find life and liveliness and richness in just taking a moment and being right where we are. Thank you, Rick. In just a moment, we take a closer look at the influence our youthful travels can have with travel publisher Hilary Brandt. And a little reminiscing about my Europe through the gutter summer adventure, that first big trip after graduating from high school. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It was 1974, and Hilary Bratt was getting ready to leave England in search of Inca ruins in the jungles of Peru. She couldn't find any guidebooks to help plan her trip. So she and her husband, George, backpacked for a year and a half and wrote up their own guide to the ancient sites of Peru and Bolivia. It would be the first of scores of titles they'd eventually publish, specializing in exotic locales on nearly every continent. Today, Hillary is semi-retired from publishing, but still leads tours to some of her favorite places in Madagascar and Peru. She makes her home in Devon in the southwest of England. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to reflect on 40 years of passionately traveling the world. Hillary, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. So how did this start? What, what happened a long ago to inspire a, a young woman uh, from England to uh, write guidebooks about the most remote places on Earth? Well, it was a complete accident, as, as some of the best things in life are. George and I were, actually, we were floating down a tributary of the Amazon in Bolivia, and we were crammed into hammocks on deck, and there was really very little to do. 
And we'd come up a little earlier and said, sort of, really, we should be writing about these treks that we're doing, because what we were doing was exploring mountain paths and routes through the mountains. This was in 1973, and there were absolutely no guidebooks, literally no guidebooks to South America, certainly not to the mountain regions. There was one, the South American Handbook, which covered the towns, but no one knew where to walk, how to walk, you know, where to go. And we just thought we would write, first of all, we thought we'd write an article, and then we thought perhaps we'd write a pamphlet for one of the outdoor shops, actually L.L. Bean. We thought maybe we could write a sort of pamphlet for them. And when we were on this barge, we thought, well, you know, let's get writing. So hmm. we wrote up some of the notes we'd taken, and uh, to cut a long story short, we, we published a guidebook. Now, that was the little yellow guidebook? It was a little yellow book, absolutely full of misprints, no maps. 1974, um, pretty bad. $1.95. And uh, how many of those did you sell? We published 2,000. It was all thanks to George's mother in Boston, who printed 2,000 copies, typed it up, because George is dyslexic, so uh, the spelling was pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, we t- we sold the 2,000 copies. And we thought, hey, you know, this this is rather fun. This works. And so we thought we'd do another one. Hillary, that is so parallel to my career. I was in the 70s. I was on the hippie bus going from Istanbul to Kathmandu. And there was 20 hippies on the bus with a bunch of local people going all the way four or five days on this bus. And there were no guidebooks. There was a staple-bound thing called the bit guide, which is a bunch of British vagabonds that had stapled it together. And everybody was scouring that thing to know how we're going to get across the next border. And it occurred to me, boy, there's a value for guidebooks. And I went home and and I typed up my first book, made 2,000 copies just like you. I think I was charging (laughs) $3.95 instead of $1.95 because I was a few years after you. But that was the beginning. And uh, since then, how many different countries have you covered in your publishing company? Well, now, now as a publisher, it's over 200 titles. What are some Actually, of the more remote <laughs> ones? Because I'm always impressed. I like to write a guidebook to Paris because I'll sell, you know, lots and lots of books because everybody's going to Paris. What are some of the destinations that you and your publishing company have decided to cover that have the most minuscule markets that other publishers would never dare to go? Well, I was saying, Rick, earlier that you and I have a lot in common, but this is where we diverge because you choose the most popular and successful countries whereas we choose the most obscure because we do like to be the first, the first guidebook to a place. One of the most unusual ones is North Korea, which does quite well. Far more people buy that book than are allowed to go to North Korea. We've done Iraq and we've done Iran. We've done the Congo, Angola, Rwanda. We do like to choose places that are emerging from conflict because we feel that that really is a benefit to the country. They need tourists. And there's a sort of perception, oh, you know, we wouldn't want to go there. They're a war zone. And of course, they're not. You know, once they're through with the war, they need to develop the country and and also sort of regain their own self-confidence because any country emerging from a civil war is devastated morally as well as economically. And that must go all the way back to when you lived in Cape Town in South Africa in the 1970s during the apartheid era, and you actually wrote a guidebook to South Africa. A lot of people say, I'm not going to go to South Africa because that would endorse, you know, their system, their racist system. Did you have a different approach to promoting tourism to South Africa during apartheid? Yeah, that's that's a very good point, actually, because our first, our second guide was Backpackers Africa because the only other guide was the bit one, like you were talking about earlier. We were both working in South Africa in the height of apartheid in in the 1970s, and we wanted to describe what Africa was like from the inside. And I was absolutely sure that boycotting the country wasn't good for it. I'd learned so much about the country from being with the, what we call the non-whites, with Africans, talking to Africans. I was working as an occupational therapist with Africans, non-whites, and I learned such a lot about them and about the culture. So if I hadn't been there, if I'd boycotted it, as was fashionable in those days, I think I wouldn't have been, probably wouldn't have been such a well-rounded person. And it's so important that we travel to troubled places in order to humanize and better empathize with the struggles that are going on there rather than boycott them and and not have them enjoy the connection with uh, other societies. 
Absolutely. I mean, it was the same with Burma. We always wanted people to go to Burma and published a guide to Burma some years ago because you're dealing with the local people. Hopefully you're staying in local places, you're buying local handicrafts, and you need to hear the stories of the people who live there, not the stories filtered through the media. So it's something I personally feel quite strongly about, although I know a lot of people feel strongly the other way. This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilary Bratt, and her adventures have turned her into a major force in travel publishing. Her Bratt series of travel guides, published since 1974, and she's adding more and more off-the-beaten-path destinations to places where guidebooks really are essential. Her company's website is brattguides.com. That's spelled B-R-A-D-T, guides.com. Hillary, when I think of all the places you've gone, people must just think you are reckless. You're going to all these godforsaken corners and you're a woman and they're just going to kidnap you and sell you into the white slave trade or something like that. You've been doing this for 40 years. I remember 40 years ago, people used to say bon voyage. Now, I don't know about in England, but in America, they say travel safely as if, you know, like, we'll pray for you. I hope you make it. What is your take on fear and and how has that changed in the last 40 years when it comes to traveling and and how bold Hmm. people are? I'm so glad you've asked that question. You know, when people say, what got you into this? I can answer, I think quite truthfully, that when I was a child, my mother never said, take care. She was happy to let us go out all day on bicycles or walking or whatever. And I mean, it was different in those days. I was brought up in the 40s and 50s. And honestly, you know, our parents, our mothers worked so hard that that all they wanted to do was uh, get rid of us during the day. And I am lucky that this sense of adventure has persisted into my adulthood. And, you know, the thing is, I've never run into serious trouble. I've hitchhiked every decade of my life except the uh, the first one. I still hitchhike. I'm in my 70s, and I do still occasionally hitchhike. And you meet the most wonderful people, especially in America. I've had some of my best hitchhiking experiences ever. i got to say, I'm sure you've hitchhiked in America, but you've also hitchhiked in Rwanda and Burma and Madagascar and in places where a lot of people would be cowering inside their first world hotel in the capital city, wondering if it's safe to go out. Have you noticed that in England, that there's more fear, or is that just an American thing? Do you notice that phenomenon? No, I have noticed it, and I talk a lot about the privilege of trusting people, and it's so much more enjoyable way to live, you know, and I'm I'm lucky in that I do trust people, and I'm probably very lucky that mostly my, my trust has been um, fulfilled. But it is a shame if you go around afraid, particularly of people. You know, people, for some reason, are afraid of being hurt by a person far more than they're afraid of being hurt by a vehicle, whereas, of course, a car (laughs) crash is much more likely than a kidnapping. You know, that is really so true, and that's the sort of wisdom that you've gained from 40 or 50 years of exploring our world in, in in such a bold and inspirational way. As a travel guidebook publisher and writer, looking back over 40 years of work, What's been the most gratifying part of all that hard work that you've put in? I think, I have to say, this sounds very egotistic, but I absolutely love it when I see someone reading my guidebook. And I'm sure you've had the same experience in Europe, but it does make me feel, oh, good. You know, people are using them. They are getting the most out of the country because they're using one of the books. Hilary Bratt. Thanks for 40 years of publishing guidebooks to these uh, challenging places that a lot of people wouldn't visit without your trailblazing. And Hillary continued happy travels. Thanks very much, Rick. Hillary Bratt writes about her travels at hillarybratt.com. That's spelled H-I-L-A-R-Y-B-R-A-D-T. By the way, today's show is program number 400 in our Travel with Rick Steves radio series. And it's also the 10th anniversary of our debut. We started on KUOW in Seattle, and now we're heard on more than 300 stations across the U.S. and Canada, and as a weekly podcast. I'd especially like to thank our public radio colleagues in Seattle, and at Spokane Public Radio, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, WILL Urbana, KVCR Riverside San Bernardino, and Valley Public Radio in Fresno. They shared our travelers' conversations with you from our earliest days. Thanks for your confidence in where this weekly hour could take us. Be assured we've got plenty of great people to meet and interesting destinations to explore together for a long time to come. Let's close out today's Travel with Rick Steves with a little reminiscing with my original travel partner. Right after we graduated from high school, 
Gene Openshaw and I spent the summer getting to know Europe up close, through the back door, as I like to call it. And look where it's taken us 42 years later. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back to the year 1973. Richard Nixon was facing Watergate. The world was facing an oil crisis. And two teenage boys from the suburbs of Seattle were heading off to Europe on their first trip, the first time overseas, away from their parents, the first taste of high culture. That was more than 40 years ago, and that was me and Gene Openshaw, our first trip to Europe on our own. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw now. He's my travel partner back in 73, and he's been working with me for the last 40 years. Well, it makes me feel a little bit old, but uh, we're still young at heart. <laughs> and Gene's the co-author of several of my guidebooks. Gene, how did a couple of kids like us, with no cultural background, grow up to be talking about art and history now on the radio? Well, the better question is, why would anyone be listening <laughs> to us? Ha, ha, ha. Okay, well, we, anyway, we did learn some lessons. Well, let me take you back to our first trip. Um, I brought something here. Oh. I'm hoping to kind of spark some memories that of what one day's was budget like right back there. then. Yeah. <laughs> few coins from the pre-Euro days. Here, look. Okay, we're talking 73. So back then, we had a Here's Deutschmark, a, yeah. we had a Frank, a, a Greek drachma. Here's a lira. And a Norwegian, a, a Danish crown with a hole in it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Europe back then was quite different than travel today. You just think about some of the most basic things that we take for granted, like phone calls. If you wanted to make a phone call, you had to gather a bunch of coins like this. Pop them in. You'd get a whole, all the coins you could gather, pop them in, and you'd get to talk one minute to your girlfriend <laughs> or your mom and dad. Yeah. The world wasn't globalized. Very few people spoke English. And I really had the sense, I don't know about you, that... We were kind of on our own out there, sort of and, the dark and, side of the moon. And it was the Cold War, and that was scary. I remember standing in Berlin next to that wall, and it was scary. Crossing borders, just remembered, you know, angry dogs and strange people coming at 2 o'clock in the morning to take your passports. And you did not question them. No, no. Yeah, Europe was kind of uh, a battlefield, a battleground between these two nuclear superpowers. But way back then, I still think there was the seeds of globalization. It was like we were on the edge of a new world. You know, remember this? We're on the Rhine River. We're at that castle in, was it Bacharach? Where you're up on that hill. Yeah. Beautiful summer over. night. We're out there. We're a couple of teenagers, and we're surrounded by a bunch of other teenagers and their hormones. And I did get a sense of globalization because we all had some things in common. We all had gotten your rail passes. We all had $3 a night for a bunk at the youth hostel there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're all fascinated by medieval castles. And fascinated by pop culture. That was about the only thing we had in common. That's true. You know, the Beatles. Uh, she loves you, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Ah, das ist, das ist gut. Right. You know, or talking about Hollywood movies. Coca-Cola, everybody wanted a Coke. That's where I thought we really connected with the Europe that was coming of age and would become the globalized world. We learned a lot about culture, even though I remember just going to the museums because my mom said it would be a crime not to, but stepping into those museums, we did gain an appreciation of high culture. Mona Lisa, that knocked my socks off. Stepping into St. Mark's Square in Venice. Oh, oh man. Stepping into the greatest cathedral in Europe, St. Peter's Basilica. Oh, man, yeah, the, the Baroque, the gold leaf, the, the statues. You know, it we didn't was, become, wow. we didn't probe too deeply into it, but we did have a respect for what people did centuries ago. And when we came back, we weren't art scholars by any means, nor are we now. But we do at least have a knowledge and understanding of what's out there. But, you know, we learned a lot from the museums and the art. But what really taught me the most, I think, was just the fact that Europe was so different then. It was kind of jarring when we went there. It kind of opened our eyes. You know, we're in Amsterdam, and, and you're seeing these hippies and freaks and Smoking pot and the girls on Z Dyke Street and the sex trade. And, and for a couple of teenage boys, that was kind of a... You're kind of trying to figure it all out. We were like two little Reese's monkeys huddling together and <laughs> hugging each other, trying not to, not, not to get into too much trouble. See but. no evil, hear no evil. <laughs> but when us. we flew home, <laughs> yeah. the world was our playground. Yeah. I remember looking back on my journal from that trip. There were so many just mistakes that turned into great experiences. <laughs> What's one of the mistakes that you remember? Uh, well, one event that stands out and probably just sums up the whole trip for me. Remember, we tried to save money by not getting a hotel or a hostel, but we tried to sleep free on an empty train car that was parked 
oh, in yeah. a train that yard. That was in Yugoslavia, wasn't it? Yes. And this train looked like it hadn't moved for decades. It was just <laughs> sitting there. I thought moss was growing on its wheels. So we, both you and I looked at each other like, we just struck it rich. You know, <laughs> hey, we could go into there, slip into there. Nobody's mm-hmm. looking. Nobody cares. Pull out all the chairs. That was when the chairs that faced each other pulled out and made a big bed. So you had a double bed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, we were kings. We were laying there. It felt so good for about like three hours. And what, what made it feel even better, it was absolutely free. It was absolutely free. And we were so smart. But then in the middle of the night, wham, <laughs> the train jerks to a start. And we jerk wide awake and we're going, oh Both of us are looking out the window like, a, what the heck? And we didn't know where we're going. Yugoslavia was scary enough. Suddenly we're hurtling through the night on a train that we don't have a ticket for. And we didn't know where the heck we were going. And we dragged all of our sleeping bags with us, standing at the door, wondering, should we jump out at this suburban station or should we stay in the train and go to Bucharest or something? <laughs> so we decided to leap and we landed in this little dark, dingy suburban station outside of Belgrade. Yep. And we- then a man came over with a... We leaped out of the moving train, didn't we? Yes, and landed just splat right on the we, concrete. We, we could platform. have hit a pillar and bounced back onto the uh, the train, and then there'd be no more trips. <laughs> but then I remember this: we kind of were checked everything. My main concern was: did we get all of our stuff off the train with us? And then were we in one piece? And this man walks over with a lantern. Actually, it was like a lantern. <laughs> yeah. And he said, who are these two crackpots? And then he he took us in like a, a loving scoutmaster. He gave us a little place to sleep, and it we was, were on our way. It, it seemed like the perfect metaphor of a European with a lantern pointing <laughs> us the way to our future. Two kids opening up to the rest of the world. It was a bit of a rude awakening, but it was probably a healthy one for a, for a couple of young kids from the suburbs. I'm sure thankful for that trip. That was the best trip ever, Gene. And what's great in my mind is that those kind of wide-eyed wonderland adventures that we had when we were 18 years old so many decades ago, kids are having them today, too. It's still possible, and that's the magic of travel. Go for it, guys. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton. With Sarah McCormick. And Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. At Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door. In Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the BBC in London, OPB in Portland, and a room with a VU in Santa Barbara for studio help this week. Thanks for joining us on our 10th anniversary. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.